Well, good morning, church. And as you heard in the announcements, Pastor Joe, he's up in uh, Crestline out at Mountain Reform Baptist Church. They invited him up there uh, for the week uh, for the weekend, him and his wife, to visit with the, the pastor with the church and then also to preach. So, Lord willing, next week Joe will be back with us uh, preaching. And I believe his plans are to start a study in the book of Genesis. I don't know if that will be taking place next week or the weeks to come. But as we finished, I think it's kind of fitting, we finished right our study in the book of Revelation of the end times, and then we'll go through a long study, basically the book at the beginnings in Genesis. The sermon text for today you will find is in Matthew chapter 24, and our Old Testament reading will come from Genesis chapter 6 and 7. And I think I don't think it was intentional, uh, or, or very intentional, but the sermon text for last week and the sermon for this week, I think, really go well with the ending in our, our study of Revelation. To what Revelation tells us of the end times and is, exhorts us to live a certain way. And we heard last week on, on how we're to live and, and where we're to put our treasures and our hope. And this week, uh, or today, this morning, the sermon text will focus on something very similar to that in how we are to live in the understanding that, that Christ is returning and will return soon. So if you want to give your attention to Genesis chapter 6, uh, I'm going to be reading 6 and 7. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to kind of skip a little bit through there to kind of present um, for you to have a foundation of where we're going with this. So in verse 9 of chapter 6 of Genesis, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark, a gopher wood. Verse 17, it says, jump to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which the breath of life under heaven Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall make an ark, come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping th- thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you, Keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So chapter 7, verse 1. Then Noah said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Verse 4, it says this, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that God had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and all animals of of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. 
in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Verse 13 says, On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them enter the ark, and every beast according to its kind. All the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all earth, went in as, as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Now I would like you to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 51. That will be the source of the sermon text for today. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the man, son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the, the coming of the son of man. Verse 40, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore also must be, also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 45, when the, Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find uh, doing when that, excuse me, uh, will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This far the reading of God's holy word. Church, as you know, God has given us a great gift in the form of his written word. God has blessed his people with what we call the Bible to hear directly from God. We need to believe that, church. When we read the scriptures, when we hear it preached, it is directly from God. God has not given us empty words of trivial nature, nor has he given us great stories, just great stories to tell our children. But rather, he's given us his word to reveal our fallen condition and to direct us towards righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we examine passages of Scripture, we must identify the fallen condition of man that the passage of Scripture has in focus and then seek to apply the grace of God to our fallen condition. So I think every time we open up Scripture and see it, we have to ask our question, what is God addressing about our hearts? Because in every passage of Scripture, that is what God is doing. He is identifying and addressing a fallen condition within us and then applying the correct remedy. So as we examine the parables found in Matthew 24, 36-51 regarding Christ's return, we are exhorted to be ready because we do not know the day or the hour of His return. 
We are given illustrations and parables comparing this day to that of God's judgment during the time of Noah and the flood. Jesus tells us through the parables and illustrations of being vigilant, guarding against thieves in the night, and the responsibility of a servant uh, governing well over what his master has given him while he's gone. The message in these imageries or the image and parables that we read here are the same, and that is to be prepared for Christ's return. If Christ is exhorting his followers to be ready, then that must mean we have a fallen condition within us to procrastinate, to be lackadaisical, quite frankly, to wander from God. When Christ addressing our readiness for his return in this passage of Scripture, he is addressing our fallen condition to wander, to seek after other gods. The people of God have been justified by the life and death and resurrection of Christ. But we, ha- we, we have been sanctified and freed from sin, yet it is in our sin nature that still remains this, this tendency to wander, to seek after other gods, to have this adulterous heart, to seek after other gods and to worship other gods other than the true God. Paul describes this condition in Romans 7 very well. And I think we can resonate with this. It says in Romans 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my actions. Can we relate, church? For I do not, for I do, not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Do you have that desire, church? But not the ability to carry it out. For I do, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find... It to be the law that when I want to do want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my, in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So you see what Paul is saying here, and I think as true Christians we should be able to connect and relate to this. As being reborn, as being people of God, as children of God, and this new spirit within us, we want to serve the Lord. We want to follow. We want to obey. But there's this internal struggle for whenever we want to do what is good, We seem to do what is not good. There's this battle within us. I would like to provide some of these, and and let me step back here. I think this fallen condition that we see here is exactly what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 24. He's telling us to be ready because his, his return is unknown. It's near, but we don't know the day, but be ready. And I think he's telling us to be ready because he knows we tend to wander. We tend to get sidetracked. We tend to do the things we don't want to do. We don't follow God wholeheartedly all the time. Further, I would like to make this case, if I haven't already, by looking at some examples of people in Scripture. First, I would like to start with Adam. We've been talking about it in our catechism questions, right? So the question, Baptist Catechism question 13, uh, the question and answer teaches us that God created male 
a man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over all the creatures. So Adam and Eve created perfect, no sin. Question 15 tells us this, that when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. So we see here that Adam and Eve were in relationship, in fellowship, interaction with God himself. They knew the truth. They were created perfect without sin. Baptist question 16 tells us this, that our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will fell from the state wherein they were created by sinning against God. So here we see our first parents created perfectly with no sin, having complete free will, that making whatever decision they want, and in a relationship with God, chose to wander and sin against God. The second example, which we already read, was Noah, right? That, that Noah found favor in the eyes of God, right? And was accounted righteousness to him. God saved Noah and his family from judgment. But if you read on in Genesis, you find that, that, that Noah becomes drunk, right? Struggles with sin, becomes drunk, found naked by his son, right? And that leads to other things. So we see here someone who experienced magnificent events with God, yet still struggled with sin and still wandered away even after experiencing the redemption process of, of the ark and saving his, himself and his family from, from the flood and from damnation. The third example I like to give would be Abraham, right? The person who made the great, the person who God made the great Abrahamic covenant with, right? The person who believed the Lord and, it, and he counted him as righteousness. Even uh, Abraham, he doubted God and committed sin, Right? Abraham lied twice, saying that his wife was actually his sister so he wouldn't be killed. He was afraid, right? He didn't think God would come through in his promises. He also had a child with his wife's servant because, God, because Abraham doubted it and didn't think God would come through with his promises of providing a son for him through the Abrahamic covenant. So you see here, too, another example is Moses, right? Great Moses, who talked with God, who brought the law, who visited with God, brought the law of God to the Israelites, led the Israelites out of Egypt and towards the promised land. But yet Moses didn't enter into the promised land because of sin in his life. The Israelites, if you recall, were complaining, questioning Moses' leadership because of, um, and in, in need of water. And God directed Moses on how to find water from a rock, Numbers 20 records this, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them." So Moses, yet experiencing amazing events with God, communion with God, seeing God, representing God to the people, yet doubted God, disobeyed, and wandered from his guidance. King David, a fifth example, King David, great King David, right? The man after God's own heart. He had a unique relationship with God and was used mightily by God. Yet still, we know the story well, right? That he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then sent off her husband to basically be killed in battle intentionally, right? Murdering her husband. Sixthly, my sixth, sixth example comes from the New Testament. We see the same principle being applied, right? One of the greatest examples of this is probably Peter, right? Peter walked with Jesus, very, very uh, enthusiastic about his relationship with Christ. 
saw many signs, participated in the transfiguration, right, where he went up on the mountain and, and saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Yet didn't Peter still deny Christ prior to, to uh, Jesus' execution being taken away? That he denied Christ in front of others. So I think the case is made from Scripture, and I think the case is made within our hearts. I don't think I have to convince you much more that, that we can have this relationship with God. We can be people of God, yet within our hearts, there's still this fallen condition that takes us away from God, that, that leads us away from God and leads us to serving self and nothing more. And I think we need to be aware of that. It's an ongoing struggle. And with that understanding of this fallen condition, I think we could better understand and better apply the passages of Scripture that we're going to examine today in Matthew 24, 36 through 51. So I'd like to draw your attention to that passage. So Matthew 24, verse 36, as we, we, we look at it, examine it. So verse 36 says, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So the events leading up to the return of Christ are described in the preceding passages of Scripture being considered today. So we're at verse 36. Obviously, there's, there's 35 verses prior to this. And if you review those, you see that Jesus describes different things that must take place prior to his coming. So in chapter 24, Jesus is answering the disciples' question, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs of your coming of the end of the age? So technically, it's a valid question. It's a, of curiosity. We want to know when Christ is returning. The disciples did, right? I won't go into much detail as we just finished, right, a long study in the book of Revelation. But in chapter 24, Jesus intertwines two momentous events of the last days. The judgment upon Israel, is, uh, Jerusalem, sorry, which happened in 70 AD, and the final judgment at the close of the world's history. In the last days which we are living, there will be wars, famines, earthquakes, false prophets to deceive and lead people away from Christ. Yet in all this, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. So Jesus answers the questions, the disciples' questions regarding his return in terms of symptoms or signs such as that of birth pains leading up to the birth of a child. So if we look back at verse 36, we see that Jesus did not give his disciples, nor does he give you and I, any indication upon the date or the time that he will return. So for us to try to predict and declare to the world the days in which Christ will return is utter foolishness and complete disregard for the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to verse 36, God the Father has chosen to not reveal the time and date that Christ will return. According to verse 30, 36, that moment is known to the Father and the Father alone. We might ask the question, why? And quite simply, it's because it didn't please God the Father to reveal it. And we have to be set with that answer. We see that in this verse, though the angels stand in very close relationship to God, and the angels are even associated with the second coming of Christ, that they have a part in that, they play a part in it, even the angels do not know the day and the time that Christ will return. Furthermore, you might find it interesting, as I do, furthermore, nor does the Son himself, and this is careful to be understood, viewed from the aspect of his human nature, does not know the day nor the, the hour of his return. This proves the futility and the sinfulness, I think, of every attempt on man's part to predict the date, to, to predict the date when Jesus will return. 
I think curiosity is wonderful. I think curiosity is good and healthy. I think we have that freedom to be curious and to ask the question and to wonder as we look at the world around us. But for the, but for the nosiness or the intrusiveness or the flat-out brazenness of knowing and predicting the day and time, there is no excuse. We shouldn't play that game. We shouldn't go down that route. We shouldn't entertain those thoughts of the many in the world that do want to predict the days and time that Christ will return. So in light of not knowing the day or time that Christ will return, Jesus provides his disciples with direction on how they should conduct themselves until he returns. He uses imagery of the flood as we read. People at work and an owner guarding his house from thieves to illustrate how one must conduct their lives in preparation for the return of Christ. In other words, Christ is saying, I will take care of my return. You take care of yourself. If we look at verse 37, if we draw our attention there, it says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware of the, until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The great flood was God's judgment upon mankind for their great wickedness and sin against God. It was also, this is kind of interesting, it was also interesting, or sorry, it was also foreshadowing the even greater judgment that will take place on humanity upon Christ's return. So you see that God, even though it was quite catastrophic and large in scope, he still spared Noah and his family. So he did not completely judge the entire uh, um, of mankind. It was limited in that capacity. But yet we know Christ's return will be much different. It will judge all humanity. Baker's New, uh, com- New Testament commentary says this, During the days of Noah, that is when this preacher of righteousness was building the ark and warning the people, they refused to take to heart what he was doing and saying. They were unconcerned to continue to live as always, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.1 says something very similar to that of Noah's day. And he says this, Paul says this, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night or nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that the whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So we see here in verse 37, back in verse 37, it says that people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and when they were caught up in the flood of damnation. So the question might be asked, what is wrong with these things? The mature Christian understands that there is nothing wrong with the many things that this world, in this world, such as food, drink, family, work, friends, wealth. Mankind can be, bring great glory. And that's important for us to understand. Mankind can bring great glory to God through these things. 
as we were reminded last week with Russell's sermon, when the soul becomes so focused on these things that they become ends in and of, of themselves, the glorification of God becomes neglected. They no longer become blessings, but rather curses. Church, it is great folly to live a life with the sole purpose to acquire wealth and possessions. You will never have enough. That's, that's one of the things about it. We could s- live a life after worldly things, and the sad thing is it will never be enough. Your wealth will come and go. Your health will deteriorate to a point where you cannot acquire any more wealth or enjoy the many possessions you work so tirelessly to claim. So all for what, if that's your sole purpose in life? So what? Your wealth is gone and your health is gone. Jesus is warning us to not be like the men of Noah's day. They failed to realize their perilous situation until it was too late, and the flood carried or swept them all away. Such will be the same at the return of Christ. And I think we can view this too. Obviously, the passage at hand is talking about the return of Christ. But also, too, we think that just our natural death is so far off. Yet we're not guaranteed any time on this life, uh, on this earth. So each and every day we must have a mission to live a life as if Christ has returned, as if it's our last, and to live with purpose to bring glory and honor to God. I want to draw your attention to verse 40. So here we give it another uh, imagery or another parable, if you will, of, of this last day. It says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one left. And we know this can or has been used as a sense of like the rapture, right? That, that one is left, one is taken away. That is not what is in view in, in Jesus' teaching here. It, rather, the Lord's return will take place when all mankind is about their daily business in the field working, and at the mill grinding the grain. The time of the Lord's return will be like any other day. The difference comes, though, that once this final day arrives, every opportunity to be saved is gone forever. The door to the kingdom will be shut forever. Jesus provides the imagery of two workers in the field laboring next to each other, and then one is taken away to the kingdom, and the other is left for damnation. It's not that one is left here on earth to then choose to accept Christ or not. This is the imagery that Jesus is giving is that at this day, it starts normal and ends quite differently. It ends that all is done with. And one is taken to the kingdom of God and the other is left for damnation. So we see here two women will be laboring in the mill side by side. And on this day, one will be taken away to the kingdom of God and the other will be left for damnation. The lesson is the same in both scenarios. One of the two is taken, and the other is left behind. The one who does the taking is the Son of Man, of himself, through the agencies of angels. So we see here that on this last day, it will be the last day, and all will come to a conclusion on that day. Yet the day will start like any other. The lesson and application is rather clear, and we see the clarity of it in verse 42. So in light of this sudden coming of Christ... And the end of all, Jesus says this, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Baker's New Testament commentary says this, To be constantly on the alert or watchful, is a, comes from a Greek word from which the proper name Gregory, or the watchful or vigilant one, is derived. It means to live a sanctified life in the consciousness of the coming judgment day. Spiritual moral, moral circumspection and forethought are required. 
preparedness is necessary. So as Christians, we are in one sense already sanctified in the past tense. Because of Christ's blood and His work and death and resurrection, He has sanctified His followers, His people. They are sanctified. They are set apart. But we see throughout Scripture this other concept of sanctification, of ongoing, called to a sanctified uh, a life. Because we are prone to wander, back to what I, I, we started the sermon out with, because we have this fallen condition to, to wander and to seek after other gods, we must be intentional about our sanctification. It is a daily focus. It's a daily decision, a daily focus in a battle, as we saw from, uh, from Paul's writings. It's, it's a battle, it's a struggle to choose life for and in obedience to God. First Peter says this, Therefore, preparing your mind for action, being sober-minded, set your hope full on the grace that will be brought to you at the re- revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we are called as followers of Christ to be holy to follow, to model after what Christ has done for us. Romans 6 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So in other words, since God has given us the grace through Jesus Christ, can't we keep on sinning? Because God will forgive us. The grace is much. And and, and Paul is saying um, that we should not. By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? That as part of our, our, our commitment and our, our accepting our faith in Christ and our baptism into Him, we are in Christ. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So what it means to be a Christian is that we died with Christ. We put to death our old self. It no longer reigns in us. It tries to, to raise up. It tries to come back. But it, is, it has been put to death. We are to live in the newness of life that Christ has called us to. Furthermore, in, in Romans, it says, For we have been united with him. Um, <clears throat> for we have been... Sorry, for we have been united with him in, in a death like this. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the, the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." So I think it makes it quite clear, and I think we need to believe this and truly believe it and act upon it, church, that the unbeliever, all they know is sin. Their heart has not been regenerated. Their, their heart is dead to God, and all they can do is sin. 
But what we have in Christ is, has overcome this death in our heart. Our heart, our spirit lives for God. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Through the, His power, through His blood, we can pursue holiness. It, it's complete futile for an outsider, for a non-believer to try to please and to live perfectly. Because they can't. Because they have not been regenerated. Their spirit has not been made alive. They don't have the power of the Christ. They don't, they don't have the spirit living within them, giving them power. So in order for us to be ready for the return of the Lord, or, or ready for us to, to pass away from this earth, we have to first believe that we have already beat sin. Sin has no bondage over us. Yes, we struggle. We will never be perfect in this life. But sin does not have uh, bondage over us. It is, we are not enslaved to sin. We are, we are alive in Christ. So if we look at verse th- 43, and in response to the, the saying, you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, verse 43 says this, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So here we see Jesus giving another example, another form of imagery or parable. So we see here, likening the Lord's coming with that of a thief in the night is found in a number of other passages of Scripture. So you find this imagery in 1 Thessalonians 5. You see it in Peter 3. We, we saw it when we studied the book of Revelation, Revelation 3 and Revelation 16. Here the similarities between 43 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4 are this. For you yourselves, from 1 Thessalonians, for you yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So both First Thessalonians, Sorry, both First Thessalonians and our current passage of study stress the point that that being unprepared of Christ's return is inexcusable. Furthermore, according to the Baker New Testament commentary, these passages of Scripture that compare Christ's return as that of a thief and night um, stress that His coming is in fulfillment of a promise. It will result in catastrophic changes. And for us as believers, it should be an incentive, an incentive to live a sanctified life. But for those that are not of the believing faith, that are not of the people of God, it should be a source of sudden terror, of great terror. But for the vigilant, as we see here, a reason to be joyful in, in, in preparing. It's a great incentive, uh, church, for us to be prepared because we know the Lord is coming. And we must be ready for it. This passage of Scripture, along with others, mentioned... Uh, mentioned pres- uh, today the idea of Christ coming with suddenness and unexpectedness. As, as a result, there's great danger th- to those that are not ready for his return. So had the master known the day and time the thief was coming, and this, this is what we would do. And this might be an answer to why Christ has not said when he would return. Because if the master knew when the thief would coming, what would we do, church? We would grow complacent only being ready for the exact day and time that the thief would come, right? Since the owner, owner of the house does not know the time and day, he must always remain vigilant and alert for thieves. F- so for the same reason, with the view of the coming of the Lord, we should always be on alert. Since this coming is a matter of finality, affording no further opportunity for repentance. I think you've probably heard people say this, well, I'll turn my life around later, 
right? I'll, I'll, I'll wait till, till, till I get older to, I'm going to have my fun and then wait later to turn my life around and, and to, to start living the way that God wants me to live. That's great folly and great foolishness for a number of different reasons. And with the text at hand, the foolishness is that we do not know when Christ will return. So if you draw your attention to verse 45, we see a new parable. It's actually a, a, a second type of a parable in this passage dealing with, with the master putting servants over his household. So in verse 45, it says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? So really, it, we have a question, right? Who is this faithful servant, right? And only you, church, can answer that question. We have outward means by which we can kind of verify and, and confirm these things, but only you, church, inwardly can answer this question. Has God called you to his own? Has God called you to repentance? Has God called you to follow after him? If so, then you are likened to this servant who has been given charge to watch over the household. Jesus teaches us this message through another parable, or the title of this parable could be called The Faithful and Sensible Servant versus The Unfaithful and Wicked Servant. Baker's commentary says this, that the master of a, uh, a master of a number of servants, or if one prefers slaves, is about to leave on a journey. Before he leaves, he places his most trusted underlings in charge of all the other household employees. In this capacity, this newly appointed household manager not only supervises the work of all the helpers, but also and specifically takes care that they are well provided for. Some people are of the opinion that this parable is speaking solely of the officers of the church and how they should conduct themselves in this final age. In other words, some people think this is specifically speaking of elders and deacons. That the church officers must be faithful, organized, and diligent in managing the people of God in the last epoch. Well, this is certainly true, that, that uh, church leaders, deacons, uh, elders need to manage the house well. I think the passage of the parable reaches much more beyond the leaders of the church, but to individual Christians. Church officers are called to lead at a high level, doing the will of the master and caring for those in need, whether this need be material, spiritual, emotional, or, or all the above, it is certainly a task assigned to us all as believers in, in the family of God. Verse 46 says this, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. In verse 46, we find a beatitude pronounced. The servant who is found doing the will of the master will receive the words of approval. Congratulations, or well done, faithful and good servant. And, and great joy bestowed upon him for the doing of the will of the master. So it is important, I think, for us to know, church, to note that the master will find the servant doing something on that last day, either something well or something not so well. So what must we be doing on that last day, church? First, I think what is communicated, has been communicated this far is that we are, we are to be expecting the return of Christ. We shouldn't be caught off guard when the Lord returns. We might be caught off that it being that day, but we are expecting that any day, any time, any hour that the Lord returns. And I would challenge you, church, to, to how often do you really think about that? I challenge myself that. How often is that in my mind as I wake up, as I go about my daily business, that Christ can return? And do we truly believe it, that Christ will return at, at, at any point? Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, how should we live our life in light of this? We are to keep a proper perspective 
each and every day, understanding that our full citizenship is in heaven and our current, current position is only temporal. How easy is it for us to forget that? We go about many things, right? I think if we view all of life's events, situations, issues with this in mind, then things begin to fall in their proper place and gain the right amount of attention. When we realize that this is only temporal, when things break, they don't become as big a deal. When, when frustrations arise in our lives, maybe they're not as big as we think they are. Or when we don't get the things we want or think we deserve, and understanding that this isn't all there is, there's much more, maybe those things aren't as significant, and they find their proper place, and the right amount of attention is then given to them. Furthermore, church, we shouldn't be waiting with a, a nervous, fearful, or uncertain spirit. How easy is that for us to do in this day and age? It's very easy to be fearful, full of anxiety, full of worriness, right? These sorts of things. And it shouldn't be in us. That shouldn't, that's, that, that's not the proper place where we should be. Paul corrects this in the people of Thessalonica by telling him, Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being uh, gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a broken word or, letting, uh, or a letter seeming to be from us, to elect that the day of the Lord has come. So the believers in Thessalonica believed that they missed the, the return of the Lord and became fearful and worrisome. Maybe rightfully so, if that's your understanding. While we might not have that same misunderstanding, it is easy, as I mentioned, for us to live a life of fear and worry, which is in complete contrary to the way the Lord wants us to live, of, of joy and of comfort and of promise and of hope of His return and, and the full kingdom come. So church, rather than living in fear and anxiety, Paul exhorts us to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness in accord with the traditions that you receive. So Paul is telling us this. For you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But the toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but you but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone, and here's the point that I'm trying to draw out of this, of how we should be in the last days. If any of you is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As we wait for the Lord, we are to go about our daily lives, working, raising our families, in fellowship with believers, and pursue holy living. So we know the day that the Lord returns is coming. Are we to act out of the ordinary? No, we're, we are to act in the way that God has called us. To go about our day, to making our living, to raising our families, to enjoying the things that God has given us, to pursuing holiness, right living, to meeting here each week on the Lord's Day and giving the proper worship to God. These are the things that we want to be found doing when the Lord returns. It's not very complicated. It's not extravagant. It's not anything special. But it's just doing the things that God has called us to. Furthermore, we are, we are to not live our life like the Laodiceans found in Revelation 3. If you remember way back then when we went through Revelation 3, the Laodiceans, the church of Laodicea, was, was classified as living a lukewarm life. Right, So we are not to be Christians that have one foot in the world and the other foot in the church trying to appear to be uh, pleasing to God. Right, A person that is lukewarm is neither hot nor cold, so they have no use. 
Rather, be like the church of Smyrna, where they were completely dedicated to the Lord, who did not have much, experienced tribulation and persecution, but remained faithful to the Lord. So we are to be found dedicated to the Lord in a life that is committed to Him, following after and being obedient to His commands. Verse 47 in our passage, if you want to look there, it says, Truly I say to you, He will set Him over all His possessions. So just as in the parable, the master upon his return rewards his faithful servant by setting him over all his possessions, so also Jesus himself at his glorious coming shall bestow upon all his faithful ones a high degree of glory and honor. So I think Russell discussed this concept last week that we work, that the work we do here on earth will either be consumed and limited to this world or we can conduct ourselves in a way that is pleasing to our master in doing so storing up treasures in heaven. I don't think we take enough time to really think about what that means. And we that we think that there is this eternity before us that will be everlasting. And what we do here and the way we conduct our lives here has an impact on how we will experience that eternity. What treasures will be stored up there. It is so easy for us to be consumed with the next and newest thing that we can buy or the next house that we can have or just that our, ha- that our family is wealthy or, or healthy and wealthy, I suppose. We can get so consumed and so focused on this but neglect the reality that there is this thing called eternity that will go on forever. And we see here that the Lord is planning on rewarding His faithful servants in that time. Verse 48 says, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you here see quite, quite two different outcomes. One, treasures and honor and glory being a, uh, uh, you know, bestowed upon the faithful servant. And here you see utter destruction to the unfaithful. So now our attention is drawn to the other side of the picture of the parable. We are introduced to a servant who assumes his master will be gone for some time and conducts himself in a manner that is pleasing and gratifying to self with no regard to his, to his master or those around him. So pl- I just want to draw your attention back to verse 48. Because I think it, it's subtle, but I think it's telling here. If you look at verse 48, it says that, that reveals about the actions of the servant. The ESV states that, but if that wicked servant says to himself. So when we talk to ourselves, right? Maybe not audibly, maybe sometimes. But when we talk to ourselves, or rather when we think, right? When we think, it's a form of talking to ourselves. When we're thinking, it's truly revealing what's in our heart and who we are at the core. The New King James Version translates this a little bit differently with the same concept. In the New King James Version says, but if that servant, evil servant says in his heart. So you see it's a heart issue that this servant, this evil servant is re- responding from. And as Jesus taught in other places, our actions reveal our hearts. In Matthew 15, 18 through 19, it says, but what comes out of the, man's, or out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. So we see that this servant has a reckless and careless heart. And how do we know that? Because we see his actions. 
So how do we know where we're at, Lord, or our church? We see our actions. We see what are we producing in our life, and it's, it's revealing with what's in our heart. So this, this servant this has a reckless and careless heart. He has no regard for the household of his master and his return. Peter describes this in Second Peter, saying, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Sound familiar, right? People might say, He's not coming back, just everything's the same. In other words, there will be long, a long time, long, long time before the Lord returns, so let's have some worldly fun. That's kind of the mindset, right? This is great folly and a, da- a very dangerous game to play. The servant in this passage reveals his cruel heart through his actions towards his fellow servants. Verse 49 tells us that the servant begins to beat the other servants. Whether it be physical, verbal, or emotional, each person reveals their true heart by the way they interact with those around them. Lastly, the servant, the servant's heart is revealed through his identification and association with drunkards. It is revealed that he rather pursue and indulge himself with the worldly pleasures than attend to the high calling that his master has called him to. So Baker's commentary says this, Suddenly the master arrives, altogether unexpectedly. He causes the wicked servant or slave to be dichotomized, that is, to be cut up in pieces, inflicting upon him the punishment appropriate for hypocrites. A hypocrite he was indeed, for he had accepted and then betrayed the confidence which his master had placed in him. When he was appointed, he had nothing, done nothing to disoppose his superior of the idea that this man will be faithful and sensible household manager. Yet he had proved to be very opposite. The reference to cutting to pieces may be the remind, reminder of the cruel treatment which in those days were accorded to slaves who disappointed their masters. In line with this reference to the severity of the punishment are also the closing words. There shall be weeping and gnashing of te- and grinding of teeth. This weeping is that of inconsolable, never-ending, wretchedness, and utter everlasting hopelessness. The accompanying grinding or gnashing teeth denotes excruciating pain and furious anger. Similar to the catechism question we're, we're studying this week of just the, this, the state which, which mankind has fallen into. So church, with us as we conclude this sermon... We have to ask ourselves, how do we apply this, this, this scripture, this passage, this information, this knowledge from God? How do we apply it into our lives? And I think there are a number of applications that were already being uh, presented through this sermon, but there's three things I want to leave you with. That if we understand that we have a fallen condition that tends to wander from Christ, and Christ is exhorting us to be ready for His, to, for his return, we have to ask ourselves, how are we to live? And the first thing I want, I want to present, that we are to live lives of preparation that Christ will return. We, we, we need to be prepared for Christ's return. We need to fight our wandering heart. And how do we do that? Well, we actively pursue active obedience to the Word of God. These aren't really anything new, I don't think, of the form of application, but they're something that we need to be reminded as a church constantly how are we to, to live? How are we to counter our wandering heart? How are we to prepare our life for Christ's return? Well, we need to daily be determined to live an obedient life to God's word. Jesus tells us, or rather, excuse, excuse me, John tells us, if you, no, it was Jesus, Jesus 14 that says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is, he, he, it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
Familiar passage, right? Familiar scripture. But how do we know that we have love for God? It's by the way we live. It's by the commandments we keep. Does this mean that if we don't keep it perfectly, we don't, we don't love God? No, it, it doesn't mean that because we know we struggle with sin. But we are to prepare our lives and to counter this wanderingness by, by actively living a life of obedience towards, towards Christ. In John 13, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We can prepare for Christ's return by daily and intentionally living an active life of obedience, and that manifests itself in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words, how we interact with one another. The second piece of the application I want to present to you is that we can live a life that is watchful of Christ's return and mindful of our wandering heart by living a life of confession. And what I mean by this, we are called to be holy, we are called to live a life of obedience, but with that high calling, we know that our hearts wander and we still struggle with sin. And I think, therefore, we must also be aware of our shortcomings and seek for forgiveness from our Lord and those around us that we wrong. I, I kind of I, I find this interesting in the sense of to where even in our sin we can be obe- be obedient by the way we respond to our sin. That makes sense. Where we might sin and, and fall short on something, and the next moment we can be pursuing active obedience by how we handle it. So when we know that we have sinned, we are to confess. We are to f- confess primarily to our Lord Jesus Christ and, and to God our Father and the, the Spirit. We're to confess our sins. Not that he doesn't know our sins, but it's showing that our heart is, is recognizing our shortcoming and our need for him. Scriptures also tell us that we are to confess to one another. If I have wronged you, I am to go to you and to confess my sins and to seek repentance and, and restoration of that. 1 John 1, 9-10 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So a part of our obedience to the word of God is confessing our sins to God when we are disobedient. Lord, make that a daily, or, or I keep, church, make that a daily, daily process that we're confessing. We, we make that a big part of our worship service, right? We, we come and call for you to confess before the Lord uh, your sins and, and make it right and, and turn from your sins. Lastly, we can live a life that is watchful for Christ's return and mindful of our wandering heart by partaking in the means of grace that God has given His people. Because a lot of this has been, tell- I've been telling you and preaching and saying, live a-, a right life, follow after, obey God in these things. And I've been also saying, we know we come short of that. We can't do it. But Christ has provided a way, God has provided a way to strengthen us to lead us, to sanctify us, to bring us along in those passages. And that's through the means of grace that He's given us. So the means of grace that God has given us consists of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and the preaching of God's Word. By faith and through the work of the Holy Spirit, these means of grace confirm our trust in Jesus and strengthen our wills to flee from sin and rest in Christ alone. So church, I exhort you to hold a high view of the Lord's day and not forsake our gathering. Here, as this is a means by which Christ gives out His grace through the sacraments, the preaching of the Word, and prayer. So that is why we, we need to hold a high view of our gathering here, because this is the way that God has ordained His means to flow to you, to me, His means of grace to flow to you and I, and to strengthen us and to confirm our faith in it. 
This is, does not mean to neglect your day-to-day walk with Christ and your prayer and, and your devotion with Him. That is significant too. But Christ has given us these means of grace to give us strength and to lead us and to persevere us through our walk to the end. And that is why the, the Lord's Day is, is so highly viewed. So church, our hearts have a condition to wander from the fold of God. Christ will return and we must be ready. In our preparation, we are called to holy living, not on our own accord, but by the power of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace that God has given us. Let's pray. Lord, first and foremost, we ask that you do come quickly, Lord. We want your kingdom to come and we want to enter into heaven and to enjoy you forever in the fullness. Lord, as we wait for your return, Lord, we ask that you help us to be people that are committed to live for you each and every day. Lord, help us to obey you. Help us to know your scriptures. Help us to apply them to our lives. Lord, help us to be um, obedient just in every aspect and, and reveal, Lord, where we're not obedient. Help us to grow on that. Lord, we ask that you would use us in this room to encourage and exhort uh, our brothers and sisters to live right before you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to uh, just to honor you and glorify you each and every day as we go just about the ordinary means of life, Lord, that you will receive honor and praise with it, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. In the meantime, Lord, we, we give you praise and honor in all that we do. Praise in Jesus' name.